Welcome back, everyone. This is Eric Ellison with the Digital Education Podcast. And I know over the last two years of COVID, I've done all kinds of short series. I'm doing a monthly series now entitled Becoming More Human. The short series that's coming back that I think people enjoyed was Leadership Lessons from Lasso that see now that season two is over. But I always love to intertwine the conversations with people who are doing interesting things so that we can have interesting conversations about the work that we do. And so today I'm with Laura Berenger. So Laura was a classmate of mine at Wheaton College, but she's been a first, second grade teacher, also a, a leader of a gifted program in a public school, and now is teaching kindergarten. But she is the, the co-author of a book I found really interesting called a, 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 entitled A Church Called Tope. So Laura, I wanna ask you a question and thank you for joining me and joining us in this conversation. How does an educator get wrapped up or get involved in writing a book about church culture and digging deep into some of the things that you, you write about in regards to your experience at Willow Creek and your experience overall looking at you know, what we're doing in churches today? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for having me. This is so fun. Um, I'm having all sorts of memories come flooding back to me from our time at Wheaton and education classes together. And I know I, since this book was published, my dad and I have collectively done over a hundred interviews. This is my second one today, actually. And this is the first one that I've done in my own field of education. Um, so that's a great question. I get people ask me that a lot. How in the world did a teacher end up writing a book about church culture? And it's a, it's a long answer. So I'll just try to get straight to it. Um, my husband and I attended Willow Creek church up here in the Chicago area for, I, it was 20 years. I think it was close to two decades. And in March of 2018, a story came out in the Chicago Tribune about our former pastor, Bill Hybels, and he had been accused of um, harassing women in the church. Um, there had been allegations of affairs and of um, inappropriate behavior with women. So I'll be honest, when I first read the article, or when I first read the headline, I just kind of rolled my eyes and was like, oh, okay, well, here we go again. There's another one of these stories. Well, I started reading the article and literally my jaw dropped open because these were people that we knew. We knew these women. They were like family friends. And if the ones that we didn't know, we had known through mutual friend and they were like peer, people of character, former elder at the church. It was like, they're not lying. Like I know that they're, the story that Willow Creek is putting out about them is false it's wrong they're literally making up a like a narrative about it and lying to try to protect themselves and naively this was the first time that I had experienced a church doing what Willow Creek was doing um launched a lot of conversations with my father so my father Scott McKnight is a world-renowned theologian and author and speaker and my husband and I would call him and we would ask him questions about what we were seeing happen with Willow Creek. And 
one of the big ones that was coming out of it was, well, Willow's not using Matthew 8. The Willow Creek was saying the women aren't using Matthew 18 correctly. They went to the media instead of talking to Bill Hybels, talking to him one-on-one. And that's not what the Bible says that we should do. I'm butchering their words a little bit, but that was, that was the message. It was, it was crystal clear. And so my dad would explain to us, you know, privately in family conversations, they're not using the right verse. They're not interpreting it correctly. And so it led to literally hundreds of family conversations. And I felt like we were learning so much. Um, And I was really, I pushed my dad. I was like, dad, like people are following what the leadership is telling them. They're believing it and then passing it on to others And I feel like we need to hear from a theologian, somebody that knows, that can, that knows the Bible and can say it's not being used correctly. That was what really got to me as I felt like, no, 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 you cannot take the Bible and use it to silence people. That is, it is wrong. I just, I couldn't be quiet about it. I couldn't live with it. So I didn't have a platform. Like we said, I'm a teacher. Um, but my dad did, and he was eventually willing to use it. It started with a series of blog posts, which ended up in the book that we ended up writing called A Church Called Tove. So, so let me ask that question then, you know, is, is, as you go through that process, uh, there's all kinds of things I could ask just based on your own personal experience and that personal journey. But how did you and your dad end up with that kind of title? you know, a church yeah. called Tove and that direction where you really started to dig into, you know, the, 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 the healthy, the good culture versus, you know, what, what had be, you know, what, what was, was a toxic culture. So help me understand like that word, that yeah. concept and why you chose that. Yeah. So Tove is the Hebrew word for goodness and it appears all over the Bible. It is I think seven times you see the word Tove in the opening of Genesis. The Bible is the book of Tove, the book of good news. And um, what my dad noticed is that when he started teaching on Tove, that it was really, it was like catchy with his students. He's a seminary professor. And he said he'd start using it. And all of a sudden, his students would be like, oh, that's Tove, it's Tove. So that was part of it is that it's a catchy word. But it's a master, more importantly, it's a master moral category in the Bible. It is how we as Christians ought to live. We ought to be people of goodness. And he noticed when he started writing about goodness connected with the Willow Creek story is that it really resonated with people. Um, We're a little bit afraid as Protestants to talk about goodness, you know, because the Bible says no one is good, not even one. Um, But what really, what really, another thing that really bothered me that I had seen coming out of Willow Creek is it seemed like their solutions to their cultural systemic problems were procedures. So for example, the elder said, you know, we really need to protect relationships between men and women that have to work together. So we're going to work on creating a process where that can be done safely. So maybe we'll have a third person present. And I, I remember just sitting there thinking like, that's your answer. That's your answer to the cultural 
sicknesses that are coming out of your organization that you're going to create processes. It's, and I, I remember my dad saying, it's not about a process. It's about character. It's all about character. We need to be people of goodness and people of goodness who have good character. I'm not saying a process is bad, but they don't need a procedure. They don't need a safeguard in place like that because they're people of goodness. So we started to develop this idea. What does a Tove person look like? And therefore, what does a Tove culture look like? And we created what we call in the book, the circle of Tove. So what we took, um, what we found is that these, some of these really toxic churches had certain, um, I don't know, characteristics or behaviors, like, for example, narcissism was a big one, or um, institutional, putting the institution before people was another big one, or loyalty to the culture. And we flipped it, and we said, okay, instead of being, instead of being loyal to the institution, what would the opposite look like? Well, a good culture would always put people first. So that's how it started and that's how it developed. Our funny story, our publisher said, no, we don't put Hebrew words in the title of books. And my dad was like, well, um, trust me, this will work. My students really like it. And they're like, oh, we believe you, but no, we don't put Hebrew words in the title of books. And then, then the other problem they had with it is they said, um, it sound, and I know I'm not saying this correctly, but this is how everybody, like most people that I know say this book title this way. They're like, and also it sounds too much like a man called Ove, a church called Tove, a man called Ove. And my, before I could get to them, my dad wrote and said, well, nobody's ever heard of that book, a man called Ove. So it'll be fine. I was like, dad, it's a New York times bestseller. Everyone's heard of that book. He's like, well, nobody in my world has ever heard of that book. Oh, anyways, we went back and forth, back and forth. And finally, the publisher relented and said, okay, fine, we'll use the word tope. And so there you have it. That's where it started. <laughs> those, those are great stories. It also yeah. insi insights into <laughs> generational differences on like yeah. what people know of pop culture and all that. Right. It, let me ask you, let me ask you this, this question, because you, you brought it up and and it's not just a church issue. You know, we see it in schools. We see it in our culture. We see it in politics. I live in Silicon Valley. I mean, you look at Apple and Steve Jobs, right? Cult of personality, narcissism. You know, we, we idolize or idolize, you know, these people and these great leaders of these, these institutions. And so much of what you just said of like, hey, that's not a culture of Tove is really what we push for in our business and our politics and our, and, and everything else. Mm -hmm. So how, how have you seen this? Like, you know, that idea of character influencing culture, like how do we do that in a world that really praises the opposite? I know. And, you know, as I was writing this book, I was, we were writing about churches and Christian workplaces, but particularly churches. And I'm an educator. I've been in education for 20 years. I've been a teacher and a gifted coordinator teacher. And so I was constantly thinking about schools as I'm writing. And there are so many parallels. Um, but to answer your question about the leadership, we found especially troubling in churches is there became a focus more on 
the pastor as leader rather than the pastor as pastor. And I'll just, I'm just repeating what my dad has said, but he said it has really, it's something that's really bothered him for decades. Um, Eugene Peterson wrote about it a lot in his books. He like harped on it. The pastor's not supposed to be a leader. And I said, at one point I said, dad, like in the Bible, does Jesus, Paul, do they talk about leadership? Where did this come from? And he said, no, like it's almost zero times that Jesus and Paul talk about leadership. It has gotten to be like, and I, like, I want to admit too, I'm guilty of it as well. I attended Willow Creek for 20 years and I attended the leadership summit. It was a huge event. And I do remember thinking, okay, not all of us, not all of you guys have the gift of leadership. And we, it became like the gift at Willow that everybody wanted to have. It was treated as like better than all of the other gifts. At least that was my perception. I thought we're not having conferences on hospitality. We're not having conferences on any of the other gifts on we're having huge conferences every year on leadership. And it's like, it became the gift that everybody wants. And it became this cultural thing that we've found over and over in churches. And it's, I don't know, I'm just going to say that it's not right. That's not, that is not how a pastor is described in the Bible. A pastor is not equated with leadership. And so, you know, like you were saying, there's this overemphasis on leadership in our Christian circles, especially in churches that ought not to be. Well, and it's interesting, and I think you pointed out, you know, at different times in the book that that you do highlight, you know, the the one strong leader, right? That encompasses, you know, the entire institution, or becomes is, you know, it becomes just kind of equated with that institution. Bill Hybels, Will Creek, and you could go on and on down the list. I mean, I know some of what I've seen you tweet and just connected with, you know, the Mars Hill you know, Rise and Fall Mars Hill podcast that has so many, you know, overlaps with some of this stuff. And you, know, you look at Ravi Zacharias, so you could go on and on the list, not just in church and in ministry, but, you know, in, in all of these other areas. I, I want to read just a quote that I found really interesting. And I want, I want you to maybe give us a reflection on what you've discovered since you, since you and your dad wrote this. And it's, it's on page 17. So it's fairly early in the book and it caught my attention really quick. And, and you said, the bad news and the good news about culture can be summed up in the same statement. A rooted culture is almost irresistible. I find that remarkable because then you go on to say, if the reinforcing culture is toxic, it becomes system, systemically corrupted and corrupts the people within it. On the other hand, if the reinforcing culture is redemptive and healing and good, it becomes systemically good. A Tove church culture will instinctively heal, redeem, and restore. Mm. Like that was to me right right away, right off the bat in the book. It was like, whoa, okay, this is that the, even the statement that he made. Same, it, it, it can be summed up in the same statement. A rooted culture is almost irresistible. Mm -hmm. I, I'm wondering two things. It seems natural that the good culture is irresistible. But how is a toxic culture irresistible in the same way? And then maybe what's just something that, that 
that you've discovered after you've written this about the good culture and how it is irresistible and it brings about healing and renewal and redemption? Yeah, so what we found over and over again, and I'm quoting from David Brooks, but cultural researchers will tell you, and I find it to be true myself, that the culture, the people in the culture become the culture. It's, it's, you can never underestimate the power that the culture has over you in the culture, over the person in the culture. So if the culture is good, the people become people of goodness. If the culture is toxic, the people become toxic as well, because the culture, think of it as like a living, breathing agent. It drives decisions, it drives behaviors, and then it reinforces those behaviors. Now, I'm going to, like, I'll use my experience at Willow Creek. I did not see the toxicity of the culture until I was removed from it. And I've had to repent of my participation. I um, noticed when I started, when I was gone and started attending a different, very small Anglican church, I, I remember looking around thinking like, oh my gosh, like nobody's clapping. Like nobody claps for the people on stage. And what I, what I came to realize is that the culture that I was in at Willow was one of like, and I'm sorry to pick on them, but this is like, this is my experience. They've gone through a lot of, you know, transitions and changes. They, it might, things might be really different now, but at the time, the people on stage were almost worshiped like celebrities. And I was one of the people in the, on the, in, as the audience standing up and clapping for them. Um, I remember one time Bill Hybels walked through, it was very rare to see Bill Hybels on campus because he was very important, you see. So he was always behind the curtain in the green room. And when he would walk through campus, it was like a celebrity sighting. And, you know, there I, I was like, oh my gosh, it's Bill Hybels. I remember my husband was like, he's not a celebrity. I was like, yes, he is. You know, I like, that's how we treated him. So he, he gave us the persona of being a celebrity, but the rest of us, myself included, treated him that way. So it took both of us. It was a cycle. He presented that way. And then we treated him and the behaviors were reinforced. So I'm, I don't know that people in the toxic culture, I'm, can speak from experience, always know that they're reinforcing those behaviors. They're so systemic that you're behaving the way everybody else is behaving. Um, and then the same is true with, with the culture of goodness. If, if, the, if the fruit is producing healthy um, acts of goodness and justice and service, the people are reinforced that way. So the way we try to explain it is that it's it's living and it's breathing. And you ought to, all of us, wherever we work, ought to be careful and realize and never underestimate the power that it has over the human being to conform and drive the behaviors. It, it is really interesting how we like to, yeah. when we're in that sort of setting, how we like to think that we're not impacted by it. It reminds right. me a little bit of David Foster Wallace when he talks about this is just, you know, the air we breathe or the water that we swim in, right? right. It's just, it's just what we're in. It's the fish looking at the fish and saying, water, what's water? 
you know, I tra- when I, yeah, right. I, when I transitioned to a different church, I remember just talking one time about, I said something about Bill Hybels said, blah, blah, blah. And the couple, a couple ladies that I was talking to looked at me and they're like, who, who's that? <laughs> and I remember being like, wow. Okay. I really like this. This is really good for my soul because, you know, at Willow, it was like, it was like a famous person that everybody idolized and worshiped. And here I'm just at a different location and they've never even heard of him before. And that probably is very healthy, but like you said, it's like the color of water or the air that we breathe. You don't realize the impact that it has on you. When I started being publicly vocal about Willow Creek, I got a lot of pushback from people that are former friends that were just furious with me about what I was saying about the church. And I, I mean, it was, it was really hard and and I was never perfect. You know, I, I probably was too harsh in what I said, but I stand by my criticism of the church because I knew the women and I knew that they were telling the truth and I knew that the church was lying about them. But I look back at those conversations now and I think, wow, there must have been something in the culture acting because of the way that folks responded to me about what I was saying. Well, it's, it's hard to believe that somebody that you, you know, trust and that you think, you know, you know, has done something on that order. I mean, I look at, you know, so many of these situations, I've seen it, you know, even in the professional space that I work in, in different ways, it's, it's like, I, I, I just can't imagine that, you know, and, and, you know, I went to Axis when I was in college, right at Willow Creek, and I spent time, you know, I wasn't ever a member at the church, but I, I loved going to the leadership summit. I learned a ton there. I took away yeah. so much from it. And, but, but there's so many things that like, I would have never imagined that these things were happening. I would have right. never even dreamt, you know, of this and that, that it was allowed. But when you get into that, and that, that's what I'm wondering about, even for our profession, right? Because our profession can be, it can come come down to being somewhat kingdom oriented too, right? In the sense that I was a very, I mean, whether it came to being a baseball coach or a classroom teacher, especially in my early years, I could be very, very dictatorial in certain ways. Narcissist, I look back at it and I've had to find students and repent and apologize to them for how I you know, treated them because I had significant amount of control in my hands. And, you know, I think most of the time I did good with it and created good with it, but then there were times it got out of control or I let, you know, my ego get out of control. So when you think about like the classroom, you know, that a teacher is trying to create and that, that, that goodness culture or a school that a principal is trying to foster, like when you translate what you've learned and discovered in this book about church culture, like what would be some of your encouragements to, you know, professionals, you know, like me and you that are teaching in the classroom or leading schools or just trying to make a difference in, in a very different setting, but so many parallels. Yeah. You know, I think about it all the time because I am a teacher. That's what I do day by day. Um, I think about the circle of Tove and I think how in my classroom can I be Tove and share Tove and be a person of goodness in my classroom today? I can nurture empathy. I can 
be grace filled and teach my students how to be people of grace. I can put them first. I can um, nurture justice. And my dad always says justice means doing the right thing at the right time. And whether that's with a colleague or a parent or a student, that's something that I can bring in developing my classroom culture. Um, being Christ-like and nurturing service is important too. And something that we're also developing. So this has been our most common question, the one you asked about education, but it's also been our most common question for church leaders and Christian workplaces as well, has been, well, how do I how do I make sure that I am developing a culture of Tove and not one of toxicity in my workplace or I'm toxic or I'm in a toxic workplace? How do I make it Tove? So our answer has always been, you know, look at the circle of Tove and develop those, those traits. We're also starting to develop in our next project is transformation of, of cultures and we're developing this idea of power and how there's different layers of power. So we as human beings have power. We have power over others. So think of myself as a teacher or as a principal, who do I have power over and how am I using it? Am I using, am I using it to make people afraid of me? Am I using it as a weapon to control others, my, what, what we are working on is developing these different layers. So there's power over and there's power to. And then what we as Christians want to do is move into sharing our power and using it for other people. So rather than enjoying my power over my students or my staff, I want to move towards having power with or having power for or ultimately surrendering my power to other people and and giving being a power through leader or being a power through teacher. Um, so I know that was like a long winded answer to your question, but um, that's what I that's what we and I have been thinking about lately is, yes, this is a book that we wrote for churches, but. I'm constantly thinking about education and how can I, how can I spread tove or goodness in my classroom today? Or, you know, as a, as a school leader, how can I use my power um, to help others and build them up rather than wield it as a weapon over people? Yeah. And, and anybody who, who listens to me at all on these podcasts or it pays any sort of attention knows that I love the research on what's called collective leadership in mm-hmm. education, which is so much of this. It, it is the us doing the work together. And, and, and I think where I've been digging deep um, on this a little bit, and, and I'm wondering to get your feedback because, because I get the opportunity to push in different ways in our profession. How do we share that power? And I was not good at it as a young teacher. I think I've gotten better at it as I've matured and as I've gone through life circumstances that I've given up control. Control was always my issue. How do we share power, not just with our colleagues and our peers, um, but how do we share power with our students? Like, is there something, because you're a kindergarten teacher, right? And that's, (laughs) that's so different than what I've done for most of my life at the high school level. How do you, you know, where like, so how are you thinking about sharing power with those little ones? 
Yeah. I mean, that's a really good question. And I'm kind of thinking of both as we're talking is, you know, are we talking about school board leaders and how they use their power? Are we talking about administrators and how they use their power? Are we talking about teachers and how they use their power? And obviously I'm simplifying power when I'm working with primary age students, but I still have power as a teacher. I still have power to build up my students or am frustrated and tear them down and say something that I shouldn't say. Um, am I, am I encouraging them? And I work in, in a public school, so I can't talk about my faith, but I can still live my faith. I can still show them that I love them and I can make decisions and use my words wisely to build them up rather than tear them down. And it's easy, like in a classroom of five-year-olds when everybody's like, ah, you know, and I don't know, I, some, there's a, there's a worm crawling through this happened the other day as a worm crawling through the back door of my classroom. You can imagine that just sets everybody off. It's, it's things like that where I'm like, okay, take a deep breath. I don't need to like damage anybody because they're screaming. I'm, I'm just, I need, I can still be a person of Tove and use the power that I have to be good and to build them up and to serve them um, rather than, and it's, you know, like, obviously if I were teaching older students, it might look very different, um, but I can use the power that I have to be and spread goodness rather than create toxicity. I can use, I wouldn't, as a teacher, I, I don't believe in like being sarcastic with my students because they don't understand that that can be very damaging or, or yelling at them. I would not do because I'm they're They're little. I want them to come to school and love school. So it's simple ways as a teacher. Um, my dream would be to get Tove into the hands, this book into the hands of school leaders that can impact the culture of the school. So of course we want our teachers to be Tove in the classroom, but what a vision it would be to have school board leaders and school administrators who are transforming their cultures away from toxicity and towards goodness too. That's a perfect place to end because mm. that is a whole conversation I could just keep rolling on. And maybe that's the follow-up conversation that we can have at another point. But yeah. Laura, I really appreciate your work, your wisdom, and for stepping into this place, the courage to do so. But then just even that place to engage your dad in that conversation of saying, help me understand. Mm. Um, Laura, it's great to see you and, and thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was an honor to be with you and good to see you after all these years. <laughs>